Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from our guest speaker. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let's uh, express once again our appreciation to Jeremy and our wonderful worship team. I can tell you, my wife and I go home every Sunday uh, very blessed and encouraged by their ministry. We thank you so much for the way you lead us to the Lord and give us an opportunity to express our love and praise to him. Uh, Take your Bibles or your Bible app or whatever it is that you have and turn to Luke chapter 24. We'll get there in just a minute, but first I got to tell you a story in When I was 19 years old, I won the lottery. Can you believe it? When I was 19 years old, I won the lottery. Well, okay, it's probably not the one you're thinking of, you know, the state education lottery. In fact, they didn't even have it in those days. I'm talking about the lottery that occurred in December 1969. I was sitting in a dorm room in college with a bunch of my buddies And we were waiting for the dates to be read out. They basically put them in random boxes and so on. And there was a, every day of the year, so 365 days uh, of the year were in in a container and they basically pulled these cards out in random order. And you found out uh, the what your eligibility was for the draft. This was during the Vietnam era. And um, I won the lottery. Well, maybe you could say I lost the lottery because I had a very low number. And uh, sure enough, when I graduated from college three years later, uh, I got it in the mail to me was already a letter from Uncle Sam basically saying, go report for your physical. on condition that you're probably going to be drafted. Sure enough, I was. And I decided that, hey, if I'm going to have to serve in the military, I'm going to serve my country and, and do my duty. I'm going, to, I'm going to go all the way into this thing. And I decided I was going to become a paratrooper. So I joined the 82nd Airborne Division. And by early 1973, I was uh, a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. The way things worked out, uh, it was too late for me to be deployed to Vietnam, and there wasn't another major deployment of U.S. troops in combat until after I finished my military service. The only time that I was in uh, significant, uh, there was a significant possibility I was going to get a combat assignment was in 1973 when there was a big flare-up in the Middle East. And they woke us up at three o'clock in the morning and said, pack your bags. This is not a drill. We're going to Israel. So off we went and sat there for 36 hours while they negotiated with the Russians and everybody else and called it all off. But so I had a relatively benign uh, time in the military, but I enjoyed being a paratrooper. I really did. The first time I jumped out of an airplane, I laughed all the way down. It was so much fun. Uh, and it, it's a lot of fun as long as you don't have all your combat gear. If you're, if you're lugging 60 or 80 pounds of extra gear, it's not fun when you hit the ground. But uh, 
Anyway, so we like to tell jokes. You know, uh, airborne duty was considered to be kind of elite. It was tough. There was physical training and everything. We like to tell jokes about our experience. Uh, one story has to do with a, uh, a soldier that was in uh, parachute training, and he uh, got up for his first jump and everything, and out he went, you know, went through the whole drill of uh, stand-up, uh, check equipment, get, uh, you know, hook up, get, get all the things you do, stand in the door, go, out the door he goes, and nothing happened. And uh, pulled his reserve, nothing happened. So he goes all the way down to the ground, hits the ground, makes a pretty big crater in the ground. And his commanding officer is thinking, oh boy, this is big trouble. I'm going to have to write, uh, you know, 85 pages with eight copies of a report about how this guy died on my watch. It's going to be terrible. So he goes running up to the crater to see what kind of guts there is on the ground down here. And to his amazement, here's this guy crawling up out of the crater. And the captain goes, oh, man, are you okay? Is everything all right? And the guy says... Yeah, yes, sir. But I tell you what, if this training gets any harder, I just don't think I'm going to be able to take it. <laughs> well, uh, so why am I talking about uh, this? Well, one of the things we had to do when we were uh, getting our training was uh, what they call orienteering. Anybody know what orienteering is? You were in the Boy Scouts or you were in, you were in the military or whatever. Orienteering basically is you learn how to navigate using a map and a compass. And you can use it to figure out where you are and then figure out how to get where you're going. That's a basic skill you need to have when you're in combat or in any kind of military maneuver. You need to be able to orient. You need to get oriented so you can do your job. I found that to be a very challenging exercise. I finally mastered it enough to get the badge that was required and so on and so forth. But what we have here in Luke chapter 24, in my opinion, is an orientation challenge, and that's what I want to draw your attention to. So back to Luke chapter 24, and we'll pick up the narrative here in verse 13, okay? Luke 24, 13, now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, together they were discussing everything that had taken place. Well, okay, we got we to gotta go back, right? Because what day is being talked about here and what are the things that were being discussed? The end of Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter three, 23 ends basically with Jesus' crucifixion on Friday afternoon and he's confirmed to be dead by the Roman soldiers that were supervising things. And um, one of the Jewish leaders, one of the, the uh, officials from the Jewish Sanhedrin named Joseph, went, he, was a simp he was sympathetic with Jesus, um, unlike most of his colleagues in the Sanhedrin. He went to the Romans and said, can I please have the body so I can bury it? And he went and took the body to his own tomb and saw to it that the body was buried. But it was the eve of the Sabbath. The Sabbath begins Friday at 6 p.m. and ends Saturday at 6 p.m. So there wasn't enough time to do a proper job of embalming Jesus. 
the women that were there witnessing the crucifixion, not very many of them, but, but women including Jesus' mother, uh, wanted to embalm Jesus' body. They wanted to do all the proper uh, ministrations and everything, but they weren't able to do that on Friday evening because of the Sabbath. So they procured all of the supplies that were necessary, and their plan was to go back as early as they could after the Sabbath was over. So Luke chapter 24 begins with early Sunday morning. These women go back to the tomb with the intention of uh, embalming Jesus' body, putting all the various uh, ointments and spices and things that were involved in doing a proper burial and so on. And you remember the story. Most of you know the story about how they were a little concerned that uh, how are we going to get this huge stone out from the entrance to to the tomb. And they got there and found that the stone was gone. That wasn't a problem. In fact, there were these two creatures in blindingly bright light standing there and uh, announcing, why are you looking for the uh, living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen, just as he said he would. And they're stunned and shocked. And what's the word? Disoriented, right? They're disoriented. And they... uh, run back to tell the rest of the disciples what they saw. In the meantime, uh, they, one of the people that they talked to, the disciples are like, oh, these women, you know, they're so, so gullible, so naive. In fact, as you know, in those days, women were really scorned in terms of their credibility. They weren't even allowed to testify in court. So that nobody believed them. But Peter and John got up and ran back to the tomb and took a look, and sure enough, uh, just as the women had said, the tomb was empty, and in fact, uh, there's an encounter there with the angel once again. And uh, now we pick up the narrative later that same day. So these two uh, disciples of Jesus, these are not uh, among the 12 apostles, they're two other people that were close followers of Jesus. Uh, So we find it in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. So basically, they're, they're saying from the previous week all the way until that morning, all the news that they had heard, they're talking about this and trying to figure out what in the world is the meaning of all this. So you pick it up, verse 15. While they were discussing and arguing... Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them, but they were prevented from recognizing him. Uh, Very, uh, as you know, the the basic mode of transportation in those days was walking, and people walked up and down the roads. This was probably for them about a three-hour walk, maybe a little less than three hours, Um, And they're just walking along, and and it would be a perfectly normal thing if you're walking somewhere for another stranger to kind of come up alongside you and maybe join in the conversation or whatever. So you can picture that that's what's going on here. Jesus kind of walks up and listens in on the conversation. And somewhere in the middle of all this, he asks them, what is this you're arguing about? What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? 
And you can imagine the scene. They're walking along here talking, having a big argument. What in the world does this all mean? You know, I, do we, should we believe those women? Peter and John, they seem credible. But the tomb's empty. That doesn't make any sense. You know, we thought he was the Messiah, but he's dead now. What are we going to do? What's, what does all this mean and everything? And this stranger walks up and says, uh, hey, uh, what are you guys talking about? And they, they uh, come up there and they stopped and they looked discouraged. And one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? Uh, I mean, again, you're walking along and something that arresting is said, what's your natural reaction? What? Whoa, stop. It's as if, uh, you, maybe you can relate to those of you that were around in September 2001. What if that day somebody walked up to you and said, uh, hey, what are you talking about? You would say, what manhole cover have you been under? Everybody knows what happened today, right? The World Trade Center was, they flew planes into the World Trade Center and they collapsed. And this is, this is what everybody's talking about. Same kind of reaction. They stop and they're arrested by what Jesus says. Jesus plays along and he says, uh, tell me, what things? Verse 19, what things? So beginning at verse, uh, they continue then. So they say to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But, verse 21, we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Continuing, verse 22. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported they had seen a vision of angels. This gets crazier and crazier, right? These angels said he was alive. Some of those, verse 24, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. How would you describe them? They were in a state of what? disorientation. They were disoriented. So my question for you today is, is it possible, is it possible that you could actually be a disoriented disciple? Could you be a disoriented disciple just like they were on that day? Picking it up at verse 25, Jesus now says to those two disciples, how foolish you are and slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. In other words, he got out the map and compass and helped them to get oriented once again. 
He opened the scriptures. What did he say exactly? Well, it was, a, it was a whole Bible. It was an Old Testament lesson for sure. I'm sure he took them all the way. Well, it says he, he began with Moses. So we know it goes all the way back at least to Exodus and goes all the way through the entire Old Testament and tells how they should have understood where they were in the history of God's purposes in the world and how they had missed it. They misunderstood. They didn't get it. They were disoriented. Jesus explained that to him. Exactly what did he say? We don't know. We don't know exactly what he said, except that maybe there's a hint of some of the things that he touched on on that occasion. When you go to Acts chapter 2 in particular, all the way to Acts chapter 7. Look at the sermons in the early book of Acts. By the way, you know, Acts was written by all, okay, this is, a, this is not a one-way conversation here. Acts was written by Luke. Acts was written by Luke. Oh, what book are we reading now? Luke, Luke 24. Okay, so uh, 20, Luke chapter 24, Acts was written by Luke. Uh, in Acts, Luke records, it's entirely possible that what's recorded in the sermons in the early part of Acts are a lot of what Jesus is expounding here in Luke chapter 24, the Old Testament story that helps them to get oriented, uh, reoriented to where they should be in terms of understanding God's purposes in the world. Jesus spends time explaining all this to them. And uh, again, if you've read this story before, you know that a number of things happen later that same day. They arrive at Emmaus, and uh, probably mid to late afternoon, they arrive there and is typical uh, Mid-Eastern fashion, <clears throat> they have to go through this ritual of offering hospitality. Jesus makes as if to go on and they say, no, 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 stay, stay and have dinner with us. And in, if you've been in some of those cultures, you know that you have to repeat the invitation and you have to refuse at least three times if you really mean no. So in this case, Jesus must have said no only twice because in the end, he agreed that he was going to stay and have supper with him. And they begin the meal, they break the bread, and Jesus offers the blessing. And at that moment when he offers the blessing, the, the veil, if you will, over their eyes, the, the, the hindrance to their recognition of him is removed. And they realize, oh, this is Jesus. In fact, they say to themselves, we should, dummy, we should have got this because when he was expounding the scriptures to us, our hearts were burning. We should have known it was him, but we were so disoriented, we couldn't even figure that out. So there's the luncheon there. Jesus is recognized. Then the disciples, those two disciples decide, hey, we got to go back to Jerusalem and tell everybody what happened. So off they go. I bet it didn't take three hours to get back. They got back to Jerusalem and they found the other disciples huddled in the upper room, scared of the authorities and having the same discussion they were having on the road. What in the world is going on here? What does all this mean? Peter, are you telling us that you went to the tomb and it was empty and you talked to angels? That is just crazy. You're hallucinating. And those women... Nobody would believe them. This is the craziest thing we've ever heard. We don't know what's going on, but you guys are, you guys are getting really, really dangerous here in terms of what you believe. 
And then in the middle of all this hubbub, Jesus appears in the room. Shock value, shock value. Jesus shows up in the middle of the room and now they're so stunned, they think it's a ghost. They think he's not a real person. So what does he do? He says, look, 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 this is, not an, this is not an apparition. This is not a hallucination. This is not a group trip or whatever. Uh, come up here, have a look at the scars on my hands and feet, my side. Have a look at them, feel them, touch them. Know that this is a real body. In fact, give me something to eat. Give me something to eat. And he ate right in front of them. So they knew this was the bodily resurrected Christ. Whew. Things are getting pretty crazy. Talk about disorientation. Now they're really, really lit up. They're, they're very confused. They're disoriented. So what happens then in Luke chapter 24? The same thing that happened with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus does the same thing with these other disciples. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Continuing verse 46, he also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. They were pretty disoriented about where they were in redemption history. Their whole way of understanding God's story was pretty messed up. In fact, you might even call it sort of upside down. They were really confused about where they were on the map of God's story in the world. Jesus says, no, you've, you're reading the map wrong. You need to go back to the map and compass and get reoriented. So Jesus says, again, verse 46, this is what is written you should have known this. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. In other words, it's as if, it's as if Jesus uh, takes a big sign. You know these, these things where you go on the and, and you're trying to... Uh, use one of these map apps or whatever, or you go to a mall and you go to the kiosk and everything, there's, there's a sign there and you're trying to figure out where you are in the mall. What does the sign say? You are, what? You're here, you're here. That's what Jesus is doing to the disciples. He's saying, look, you're, you've, you're acting like you're lost, but let me point out where you are. You're right here. This is where you are in the story that God is writing. I don't know about your understanding or your view of the Bible, but do you understand that the Bible is a coherent story, the storyline of which you can follow? You can know where you are on the map of God's story. The Bible's not just a collection of platitudes. It's not just a list of things that you should, should or shouldn't do. It's not just good advice about life. More fundamentally, the Bible's a story that tells you what God is up to in the history of the world and where the world is headed and where you belong in that story. There's a you are here in the Bible if you have eyes to see it. And this is what Jesus does 
on that night when he meets with the disciples. It's as if he opens the Bible, lays it before them and says, here's the map, here's the compass, you are here. One way to think about the story of the Bible is to think about it as an unfolding drama. And uh, one scheme of it here is uh, Acts chapter 1, the creation of the world. The second act is the fall of humanity, which is recorded in Genesis 3. Act 3 is the calling of Israel to initiate the purpose of redemption by calling a people who would be a witness to the nations that God has a redemptive plan. And then there's an interlude during the intertestamental period, 400 years. And then there's the other big unfolding act is the coming of Christ to earth in the flesh and accomplishing redemption that's been promised in the Old Testament. And then act five is the age of the church when redemption is announced and authenticated. And finally, act six, the return of Christ and the completion of redemption. And it's Jesus who says to the disciples, look, this is the story and you are here. This is where you are. The Messiah will suffer and be buried and be raised again the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in all the nations uh, in his name. This is where you are. Jesus pulls out the map and the compass and he says, I'm going to give you a biblical reorientation. So my question to you today is, have you had a biblical reorientation? Or do you need a biblical reorientation? Do you understand where you are in the story God's writing in the world? Or do you just sort of think of yourself as drifting along aimlessly in life? You're glad for the advice God gives you about how to live well and to flourish and so on, but you really don't live your life as if you understand where you are in the flow of what he's doing. You see, if you have a biblical reorientation, it's going to have a radical effect on at least two things. First of all, it's going to radically affect your values. What's important to you will change if you know where you are in God's story. Things that used to be important will diminish in importance if you understand where you are in God's story. And secondly... Your vocation, what you think you're called to do is going to come into focus if you understand where you are in God's story. Now, when I say the word vocation, probably what jumps to a lot of your minds immediately is occupation. I don't mean occupation. Your occupation is not your vocation. Your vocation transcends your occupation. Your vocation is that about which you are, you might say, preoccupied. This is what transcends your job. It's the reason you live. It's what you're called to do. And at the heart of that calling is this part of the story that Jesus says the Messiah would suffer and be raised again the third day and that, what? And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name. That doesn't mean... Don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean that every one of you is an evangelist or a missionary 
vocationally. But your vocation revolves around what God is up to at this moment in history. And if that, if your vocation doesn't revolve around that, to that extent, you might say that you are, what's the word? Disoriented. You're disoriented because your vocation doesn't revolve around where you are in God's story. I ask you today, is it possible that you're a disoriented disciple? Are you a disoriented disciple? If you are, let me suggest to you that the antidote to that is to go back to the map in the compass. Get an understanding of the Bible that's in line with God's story. There's lots of opportunities to do that here at Gateway. There's plenty of places where you can go study the Bible, but you have to get the map and compass out and you have to rethink the way you even think about and look at, look at the Bible. God is writing a story in history and you have a place in that story. You need to become oriented to what your place is in that story and have God radically alter your values and your vocation. Simple call for you today. Where are you? Do you, do you honestly have to admit, yeah, I'm a disciple of Christ, but the truth of the matter is I'm pretty disoriented. I really don't know where I fit. I don't even, I don't even know what, what my life means. I, I certainly don't know what should be important to me or anything. Uh, I appreciate what God has done for me in Christ. I appreciate the good advice he's given me and everything. But as a matter of fact, I feel kind of lost in terms of God's purposes in my life. Can I invite you to make a serious commitment to go back to the map and the compass and ask God to do a work of reorienting you, one that will transform your values and your vocation. That's my call and my invitation to you today. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us in that.